Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, that'll be our text this Lord's Day as we uh, begin our way through this chapter. If you've been with us in our study of Hebrews, you know that last week we wrapped up our study of, verse, or of chapter 6, uh, where the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our sure and our steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. We talked about how Jesus is that anchor, not like an anchor that goes in the depths of the sea, but an anchor that goes into the holy of holies, that goes into the heavens, and, and we are secure in Christ, through Christ. He's gone before us. And so the writer of Hebrews has, has given us this picture that we might have assurance of our salvation and understand what it means to be anchored in Jesus Christ. And so we, we talked at length about that. And then at the end of that passage, the writer tells us, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's a name that we've seen come up several times now in Hebrews. And each time I've said that we'll get to that. Well, today is that. Today we're beginning chapter 7. And, and this is... A section of Scripture that, frankly, I think that many of us just kind of go through quickly. We don't stop and consider. There are some things that as we read them this morning, they can seem a bit confusing to us. Uh, the Old Testament doesn't teach us very much about Melchizedek. But today, I hope that we can really make sense of this text and, and see and understand why it's here, uh, who Melchizedek was, and, and how, specifically, Melchizedek points us to Jesus. Because now that's the point of this letter to the Hebrews. This is really a, a sermon to the Hebrews, preaching about the greatness and the holiness of Christ. And so I pray that that's what we'll see as we look at Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 10 today. So out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this passage for us. Remembering that we, we stand out of reverence for God's Word, that this is God's Word to us. He has spoken. And so it's time for us to listen. And this is what his word says. Hebrews chapter 7 beginning in verse 1. Hear what the Holy Spirit says to the writer here. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes, 
through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. If you would pray with me. Father God, we do trust you today and trust what your word tells us, that all scripture is inspired by you, that all scripture is profitable for us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see what is profitable here, what, what is instructive here, that we would see what, what words you have for us from these ten verses in Hebrews 7. But Lord, I pray during this time that you would show us your grace and mercy, that you would protect, protect us from anything that would distract us from understanding the truth of your word. And I pray that our response would be that of repentance and faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned already, Melchizedek is a name that we have seen already from the writer of Hebrews as he's been teaching us about the priesthood of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10, he tells us that Jesus was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And if you'll remember, right after he says this, he says, about this I have much to say. And so he's already given a, a warning. I, I want to teach you a lot about Melchizedek, which is surprising because the Old Testament says very little about Melchizedek. Uh, we read about Melchizedek in Genesis 14. We read about Melchizedek very briefly in Psalm 110, which we sang earlier. But the most we know about Melchizedek comes from Hebrews chapter 7. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, I want to teach you a lot about Melchizedek in order that you might learn a lot about Jesus. But before I can teach you these things, I need to deal with your dullness of hearing. You're not listening to me. You're immature in your faith. There are many of you who are in danger of falling away. So he gives a very strong warning to them and he encourages them to hold fast and to stand firm and to press on in their faith. And now he comes back around to this teaching about Melchizedek. The question for us this morning is, is why spend time on this text? Why look at a portion of Scripture that deals with a portion of Scripture that doesn't give us a whole lot? Why, why spend time even discussing Melchizedek when the point of Hebrews is to learn more about Jesus? And I think it's because what God intended in Melchizedek's life and what God intended when He placed Melchizedek's brief little window of his life there in Genesis 14, and what He intended when He put the name of Melchizedek in Psalm 110, was He intended that we might learn more about Jesus by learning more about Melchizedek. That, that as we study Melchizedek's life, we learn about Jesus. As we study the greatness of Melchizedek, we learn about the glory of Jesus. And so that is our goal today. It's, it's not to make much of Melchizedek, but it's to make much of Jesus as we look at this picture that God has given us, this one who He points us to Christ through. Now, it is helpful to understand the context of what's taking place. Again, in Hebrews 7, we learn more about Melchizedek than we do anywhere else, but, but the other passage that really tells us what's going on occurs in Genesis 14. Uh, there in Genesis 14, that is a time of battle where you had kings coming together to fight other kings and other kingdoms. And, and you may know the name Lot, that was Abraham's nephew. And you may recall that Lot lived in the land of Sodom. And, and that's one of the places involved in a battle. In fact, Lot is taken captive 
in this battle. And when Abraham hears about it, he needs to gather an army together to go and to rescue his nephew Lot. And so God gives Abraham and his army victory over these other kings and they're able to rescue Lot and many others and they're returning home. And as they return home, they're met by two kings. Genesis 14 tells us that the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, which was Melchizedek, came out to meet Abraham and to meet his army on their way back from this victory. Now the king of Sodom, we know from... Uh, what we read in Genesis, Sodom was a, a wicked place. He comes out to meet Abraham. He's trying to kind of make a deal with Abraham. He, he wants to divide up the spoils of battle with him. But the king of Salem, Melchizedek, seems to have a, a very different intention. And that's what the writer of Hebrews tells us about here. And so we're just going to walk through this passage. And I want to point out to you things that we learn about Melchizedek that ultimately point us towards Jesus so that we might learn more about Christ as we learn more about Melchizedek. Now, beginning with the first point there in your outline, we see here that Melchizedek was both priest and king. Verse 1 says, For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God. Now this stands out to us because in Old Testament Israel there were three offices and they were three separate offices. You had the office of prophet the prophet was the one who spoke on behalf of god to the people you had the office of priest the priest was the one that went before god on behalf of the people so god would speak through the prophet to the people and then god would or the people would speak to god through the priest the priest was the one who made the offerings to god on behalf of the people these were two separate offices and then ruling over them you had the office of king now, God kept these offices separate for a reason. You can imagine how much power someone would have had in Old Testament Israel if they had been the prophet and the priest and the king. You can imagine how that could have become very corrupt. It's much like in our democracy here. We have a separation of powers, and that's to give us balance in the ruler and authorities over us. Well, God, knowing our sinful flesh, our inclinations, He gave a division of these powers. You have prophet, priest, and king. And God was very serious about keeping these separate. So we see, for example, when someone tries to cross the line and take on more than one office, God judged them. We see this, for example, in 1 Samuel 13. Now, you may recall Saul was the king over Israel. And Saul was leading his people into battle. And as he led them into battle and was leading them into another battle, Saul needed to make a sacrifice or have a sacrifice made on behalf of the people before they could go into battle. And so he needed Samuel, who was the high priest, to come and to make this offering. But days went by and Samuel was not there. And Saul began to worry. And Saul got anxious. And Saul thought, we need to make this sacrifice now so that God will bless us in this battle. So Saul, who was the king, decided he would play the part of priest. And so Saul oversaw this offering. Well, that was a bad decision from Saul. In fact, soon after that, Samuel comes on the scene and Samuel speaks to him from the Lord and gives him a word of judgment from God. As you read 1 Samuel, you see it's within just a chapter or two after that that God removes his anointing from Saul and anoints another king over Israel. Why does God do this? Because God is serious about his law. 
And God is serious about his standards. And God is serious about these offices he puts in place. He had that separation there for a reason. So when we understand that, it really should jump off the page to us then that this Melchizedek is one who held two of these offices. He was both king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. And unlike Saul, he didn't take these offices upon himself. The picture here is that God placed him in this position. And I believe he did this in order to point us towards Jesus, who would be not just king and priest, but prophet as well. We see in Jesus this perfect picture of all three offices in one. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is the greater prophet. He's the one that all the prophets spoke of. He's God's last and final and truest and most glorious word. Jesus is the perfect priest. He's the one who, after making purification for sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, that picture we've talked about of how Jesus did what no other priest could do. He offered a sacrifice once and for all, and the work was finished. There was no need to go year after year after year as the priest had done. It was finished, and so he sat down. And we see that picture in Hebrews 1 of Jesus as the supreme king. The writer tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the supreme king. And so you can see here how Melchizedek gives us just a glimpse of the greater glory we see in Jesus, who's the perfect prophet, priest, and king. We also see point two that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And in verse 1, we read that, that he blesses Abraham, which is a position of authority over him. In verse 2, we see Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek, which again shows a position of authority. In verse 4, the writer tells us, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of all the spoils. In verse 7, we read, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Why is this significant? Well, as you study God's people, you see that they took great pride in being the children of Abraham. In fact, in John chapter 8, John records an encounter that Jesus has with some of his disciples. And John specifically says these were Jewish disciples. These were Jews who were following Jesus, much like the people we see in Hebrews. And as Jesus is interacting with them, that there comes this 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 boasting, this pride among these Jewish believers. They, they are boasting because they're children of Abraham, because they're descendants of Abraham. And Jesus is telling them, listen, I'm greater than Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. And this really confounds them. Because they held Abraham in such a high regard, they didn't believe anyone apart from God could be exalted above Abraham. And so they're really troubled by this saying. And they asked Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 53, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? They're basically looking to Jesus and saying, How dare you say that you're greater than Abraham? Nobody's greater than Abraham. And so notice what the writer to the Hebrews does here. He's helping the Hebrew Christians to see, listen, it's not just that, that Jesus is greater than Abraham. There's been those who came before Jesus that were greater than Abraham. Look to Melchizedek. 
He's saying Melchizedek blessed Abraham. That There's a clear position here of the superior and the inferior. And Melchizedek, even though we don't know much about him, he's superior over Abraham. And why is that important? So that they might see the one who's even superior over Melchizedek. So they might see that the true and the living Christ and the greatness of Him. And Jesus is superior. Point three, we see that Melchizedek was the king of righteousness and of peace. We read in verse two, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. In Hebrew, if you take the name Melchizedek, the first part of that name means king, and the second part of that name means righteousness. And so he's saying that this is what his name means. He was the king of righteousness. And he goes on to say he's also the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. Salem came from the Hebrew word shalom, which meant peace. And so he's saying that this king was a king of righteousness and peace. Now, we might just glance over that, but again, consider the time in which we read about Melchizedek in Genesis 14. I mean, you may not be a a deep student of the Scripture, and if somebody were to ask you, well, tell me about Sodom and Gomorrah, you could probably say a few things. You probably know enough to know Uh, These were wicked places. And so if you're the king of Sodom, you're the king of wickedness. And in Genesis 14, we read that it's the king of Salem, Melchizedek, and the king of Sodom, this king of wickedness, who go out to meet Abraham. You've got this picture here of the king of wickedness and the king of righteousness. Melchizedek lived during a wicked time. He lived during a pagan time. He lived when the land was, was ruined with wickedness. And so his, his righteousness really stands out, as does his peace. We learn about Melchizedek at a point in Israel's history when there's just wars and wars and rumors of wars. In fact, in Genesis 14, you've got five kings battling against four kings, and it just seems the whole kingdom's at battle. And and here's this mysterious figure who's not just the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace. He's ruling in the midst of a a war-torn area, and he's ruling peacefully. And friends, this is a picture that that points us directly towards Jesus Christ. Jesus, who's the King of Righteousness, who's without sin. In fact, it's because He's the King of Righteousness that you and I can be brought into peace with God. Because He's the one who was without sin, who died in our place. And He's the King of Peace. Let me ask you to think about this for a moment. Have, have you ever had, or maybe perhaps now you have, somebody that you're not at peace with? Someone in a relationship, maybe a group of people who you're at odds with them, you're not at peace with them, there's some type of conflict there, it might be a barrier in your relationship with them. What needs to happen for you to be at peace Is it as simple as saying, well, we're just going to forgive and forget. We're going to pretend nothing ever happened and we're just going to move on. Well, that doesn't work so well, does it? Because we don't have the ability to forget. I mean, we forget the things we don't want to forget, but but you just can't wipe this slate of your mind clean. And in fact, that's that's not really what the gospel teaches us. The gospel is not a forgive and forget gospel. Now, what the gospel teaches us is that there 
There needs to be repentance, a, a turning from sin. There needs to be an atonement, a payment for sin. We, we can forgive because we've been forgiven. And so when, when there's not peace between two people or two groups of people, in order for there to be biblical reconciliation, for there to be peace, that there has to be forgiveness. And in order for there to be forgiveness, there has to be repentance. That's why some of you may struggle in your relationships, perhaps even in, in marriage relationships, you, you struggle with forgiveness because you're real quick to say, I'm sorry, but you're really not saying what you're sorry for. You're just sorry there's an issue. <laughs> you're just sorry you got caught. You, you just want to move forward. You just want to forgive and forget. But, but true reconciliation comes when there's, when there's repentance, when there's an admission of guilt and a turning from it. And then there can be true forgiveness. And one of the reasons that so often we don't have peace in our relationships with one another is because we're sinful, fallen people. And a lot of times it's because neither side's willing to admit fault. Or maybe both are willing to say that they're at fault, but there's always that finger pointing of, of who started it or who did what first. And so we struggle to have peace with one another. But notice in this relationship with God, it's really clear where the fault lies. In our relationship with God, that there's no finger pointing at God. The finger points directly towards us and our sin. And notice how God is rich in His grace and His mercy towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place so that we could be at peace with God. Friend, I'm concerned if you don't have peace with other people, but not having peace with another person is not nearly as significant as not being at peace with God. Do you have peace with God today? Have you been reconciled to the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ? Do you realize that you were born, I was born, we were born with a sin nature and rebellion towards a holy God and no matter how good we might appear to others, something has to be dealt with with this sin nature that, that, that we have rebelled against God and that we deserve the wrath of God for our sin. But God is so rich and gracious towards us that Jesus, who was without sin, He died in our place. And the Scripture says if we'll confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. We will be at peace. And this world, the Scripture says, you won't have peace, but with Christ, you can have peace. He's the King of righteousness, and He's the King of peace. And we see a picture of that in Melchizedek. Point four, and Melchizedek had no beginning or end. Here, here's this mysterious verse that can be somewhat confusing. Verse 3, the writer says, He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, He continues a priest forever. Now, that verse has led some to say, well, it seems that He's some type of celestial being. It's led others to say this appears to be perhaps the, the pre-incarnate Christ. But I, I think what we see here is this is a man, because the writer of Hebrews goes, goes on to say that this is a man, and I think he's a picture to point us to Jesus, because the writer of Hebrews says he resembles the Son of God. So why would he say he's without father or mother? Well, notice what he also says, also says or genealogy. 
He's not saying, I don't believe, that Melchizedek wasn't born physically or didn't really have a mother or father. He's saying, notice, we don't know anything about his mother or father. We don't know anything about his past. We don't know anything about where he came from. And we don't know anything about where he went to. We don't know about his beginning of days. And we don't know about his end of days. He's this picture in Genesis 14 of just this priest who kind of shows up and then he's gone. And that's radically different than the priesthood we see throughout the Old Testament. Because the rest of the time, whether it's in the priesthood coming from Aaron or the priesthood coming from Levi, we see a real clear picture of who belongs to who. This person's a descendant of this person who's a descendant of this person. I mean, think about if you were with us when we went through the book of Genesis, just personally, I can remember sitting there for nights and trying to pronounce all the words of these genealogies to come and preach about them on Sunday morning. Why is it there? Because it's significant. It's significant in the Old Testament who you came from and who came from you. And so it should stand out to us that Melchizedek seems to come from no one and seems to have no one who comes from him. But it is a picture intended to point us towards Jesus. See, Melchizedek serves as sort of a, an open-ended priest of Israel. There's no one that comes after him. There's no one that comes before him. And as such, he points us towards the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. And that's the point that the writer's making here. Though the writer's not writing all this about Melchizedek to say, now let me just make a lot about Melchizedek. Let me make much of Melchizedek. No, Melchizedek is to point us to Jesus. That's why it goes on, if you read down there in chapter 7, verse 25 to tell us about Jesus that in his eternal priesthood says he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them just consider the gravity of that statement for a second Jesus always lives to make intercession for you to pray for you and pray for me I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but you can imagine yourself raising your hand. Uh, Have you ever told somebody you would pray for them and you didn't? Or perhaps commented on social media as you read about something going on in somebody's life, Praying for you, praying, that, that word implies not only have I prayed, but I am praying, and I, this is an ongoing prayer I have for you. Now, have you ever done that, but, but maybe haven't actually prayed? Or, or maybe in that moment as you write, as you're typing, praying for you, you think, well, gosh, I haven't prayed for him, so then you just stop and go, okay, Lord, I pray for so-and-so, I pray right now in Jesus' name, okay, oh, then I can enter now. Or maybe you're disciplined, more disciplined than me, and you, you write down every one of those prayer requests, and every time you've ever said you would pray for someone, you write it down. How, how much time do you spend praying for those people? Have you ever perhaps forgotten to pray for someone you said you would pray for? I, I fear that we don't even begin to grasp the magnitude of what it means that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, 
lives eternally and in His eternal life that He is praying right now before the Father for us that, that we don't even get a glimpse of how awesome that is because we have so diminished what it means to pray for someone. But the picture of Scripture is this. Jesus doesn't just say, hold on. Jesus is praying right now that you hold on. Jesus doesn't just say, persevere and endure. Jesus is going before the Father right now and He is praying that we might persevere and endure. Jesus doesn't just say to us, stand firm in the truth. Jesus goes before the Father and He is crying out to Him and interceding for us that we would stand firm in the truth. Jesus does not forget to pray for us. Jesus does not flippantly say He will pray for us. Jesus lives eternally that He might intercede today and pray for us. Because He's our great High Priest. And that means that in moments where you may feel abandoned, and in moments when you may feel isolated, and in moments you may feel alone, you need to be reminded of what God's Word says. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is praying for you, friend. That's why it says that you're in His hand, and you're in the Father's hand, and no one can snap you out of their hand. He is praying for you. He constantly makes intercession for us. We see as well, point five, that Jesus was, or excuse me, that Melchizedek was not from the tribe of Levi. And this gets into what can be a bit of a confusing part of the text and the, the language here, verses four through ten. But but I just want to kind of bring this in and, and, and summarize it. Essentially, what I believe the writer is saying here is he's going at lengths to point out that that Melchizedek did not come from what would be the tribe of Levi, this tribe that the priests would come from. Now, at this point, when Melchizedek comes out to greet Abraham, there's no tribe of Levi yet. These tribes would be descendants of Abraham one day. But he's pointing out this bigger picture, and he's helping us to see that one day there's going to be tribes that come from Abraham, there's going to be the Levites, and the Levites are going to receive the tithes from these other tribes of Israel. But he's saying, look, there's somebody from outside of this whole system, outside of Abraham and his descendants, and notice Abraham is giving a tithe to him. Abraham is making an offering to him. He's showing us this greatness again of Melchizedek over and above Abraham and these descendants of Abraham. And I believe he's laying a groundwork here to show us that there would be a great priest that would come who wouldn't be from the tribe of Levi. He'd be from the tribe of Judah, which is where Jesus Christ, the tribe he's from. And so again, all these arguments are laid out so that we can see ultimately the glory of Jesus Christ, which brings us to our concluding point, point six there. Jesus is our Melchizedek. And He's worthy of all our worship and praise. All these things we learn about Melchizedek point us towards Jesus. Jesus is our King of righteousness. He's without sin and He is perfect. Jesus is our King of peace. He, he makes peace with us 
before God the Father. And so how should that, how does that affect us today? Well, again, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but have any of you struggled with anxiety? Worry? Have you ever lacked peace? Jesus says in John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Well, how can Jesus say that? Because He's the King of all peace. And He says, you may have trouble, you may have worries in this world, but there is a day coming, friend, when I have conquered all. And you'll be at peace forever. He's our eternal King who calls us to trust in Him, to hold fast and to stand firm and to press on and to remember the day is coming when we read in Revelation 21 that He will dwell with them. And they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, because He is making all things new. It's who our King is. And so our response to this word about Melchizedek should be that we worship Jesus. Now here's the warning. If you don't have a desire to worship Jesus today, what makes you think you're going to have that desire for all eternity? And if you don't have a desire in your heart to worship Jesus today, that may be an indicator that you don't truly know Him as King. Now, I'm not saying that in the Christian life, we just walk around 24-7, oh, I just can't wait to worship Jesus. Now, some of you might be here today and you are weary and you are exhausted, and you are barely holding on, and your desire may not be to worship, your desire may be to go curl up in bed and just go to sleep. But the Scripture says you can take comfort because there is one who went to the cross for the weary souls. And there is one who stands ready to give peace to the weary souls. And there is one that we can worship who can provide comfort in all of these things for our weary soul. You, you may feel this morning not so much like worshiping because you feel ashamed, because you feel dirty, because you've got sin in your life and you're rebelling against God. But you have not gone, gone so far that the arm of Christ cannot reach you and cannot forgive you. He is sufficient. Come to Him today and see His worth and His majesty and what it is to truly worship Him. And so we're going to worship by singing a, a familiar hymn before the throne of God above. Now this was actually written by someone, I've said this before, from Bloomfield, but it was a different Bloomfield. <laughs> a Bloomfield in Dublin, Ireland, a number of years ago. It was written by the daughter of an Irish pastor, uh, she was about 22 years old when she wrote a hymn entitled The Advocate. And, and I love that title, The Advocate. We've since replaced it over the years, or someone did, with, with the first phrase of the hymn before the throne of God above. But, but I love that picture of an advocate because that's who Jesus is. 
And so again, this morning, if if you feel overwhelmed by sin, know that in Christ you have an advocate who goes before the Father on your behalf. That this morning, if you feel worn out and weary and exhausted, no, you, you have an advocate who goes before God on your behalf. And so we're going to sing about this great advocate, about Jesus Christ. But I find it helpful at times, this morning included, to read these words before we sing them. So if you'll just listen for a moment and think about what it is we're about to sing. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace, one with Himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. What a glorious truth for us to confess. So if you would stand and sing that together this morning, and as you do, I'll be here down front. I'm available to pray with you and counsel with you. If you have questions about the Gospel, if the Lord is leading you to come and confess Christ as your Lord today, if you have questions about church membership, if you just need someone to pray with, it would be my joy to do that this morning. But let's join now our voices together and sing about our great High Priest and the access we have to the Father through Him.